Well, brethren, uh, if you could turn with me in your Bibles to the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. And while you are turning there, a few words of uh, uh, introduction. Um, my first visit to the U.S., or maybe the second, at this stage of uh, life, my brain has become rather porous. Uh, but that's when I first visited um, Cape Coral and uh, came and preached uh, here. Well, not in this building. can't even remember where that was then. Um, but I remember that occasion primarily because uh, of the wrong impression that I had. Remember, it was probably my first visit to the U.S., came off the plane, and uh, uh, this place was hot. It must have been summer and very humid. And that heat, as I just came off the plane, hit me. And I remember thinking to myself, America must be hot. <laughs> yeah, I've since visited Minneapolis and, uh, uh, in winter, and I realized that that wasn't quite right. But that's really the beginning of the relationship that um, uh, I've had with this part of the world, uh, my family with the Ascols, and it's probably been one of the greatest joys that I've had, my family has had um, over the years. So you're talking about at least a quarter of a century. Um, Tom was referring to our time together in South Africa, and probably that sort of struck him the most. For me, it was when he came to Zambia together with his brother Bill to come and minister uh, at our annual conference. That, again, would have been, I was just checking that out, actually, uh, earlier this morning. It was in the year 2003. And 2002 was the most difficult time that I've ever had in my own church, uh, going into 2003. In fact, the time they came to visit, I'd even typed out my resignation letter. I was ready to quit being pastor of the church. And uh, so when they arrived, they found a very miserable uh, Conrad Mbewe. Uh, talk about Elijah. At the time, he was saying, I'm the only one left. Uh, I was feeling something of that. And the ministry that both of them undertook, and as they ministered to me, my family, as they tried to, to sort out the mess that was within our own eldership. At that time, we had already put aside a team of uh, pastors to try and just help us think through. And they engaged that team as well using the, the experience that they've had of ministry here. By the time they were leaving, I was a new man. And that's what I specifically remember the most uh, from um, my associations with Tom in those early years. But with respect to Grace Baptist Church, I really want to use the opportunity to thank you 
also for your ongoing support with respect, first of all, of our, our missions work, our church planting activities. As I stand before you now, we've planted roughly 35 churches within Zambia and across Africa, and you've been with us in this journey. And we really want to, uh, to thank you for that. Uh, beginning of last year, in around about February, so it's less than a year, we've also now taken on two church planting works in Kigali, Rwanda. Those would have been our latest uh, church plants. And they are also doing well. We are quite encouraged. We've gotten the two uh, brethren that are running these churches uh, to study at um, Covenant uh, Reformed Baptist Seminary here in the U.S. using long-distance studies. And again, just knowing that we can join hands this way in our church planting efforts is a real source of joy to us. And then also uh, partnering with us in um, the African Christian University. It's a, it's a mammoth project. We're grateful for a brother like Vodibokam who has come over and is helping us, especially on the seminary side of things. I often jokingly say to people that if I knew in 2008, when we decided to start the university, what I know now as uh, the demands of getting a university off the ground, we probably would still be praying about the idea. <laughs> Uh, I think the Lord closed our eyes so that we could jump. And then now that we are in mid-air, we are crying out to him to help us. <laughs> so I thought I should just again thank you for your partnership in that grand and great project. Well, down to Ecclesiastes and uh, chapter 1. Um, I'm using verse 1 and 2 to really just get us off the ground. And the words in those two verses, maybe let me add verse 3 as well, because it will be handy in bringing out the reason why the author here, who I believe to be Solomon, says the words of verse 2. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? My main reason really for drawing attention to this book is that in my own daily devotions at the beginning of um, the week that has just come to an end, I have finally landed back into this book again. So the words that I'm preaching from really are words that gripped me afresh earlier um, this week as I began to think about them as I have done many times before. In fact, 
Ecclesiastes was the first book I read when the Lord saved me on the 30th of March, 1979. Uh, I've never forgotten opening the Bible, and I think I must have just opened it in the middle somewhere on that occasion, and beginning to read and thinking to myself, wow, has this book always been there? <laughs> it was refreshing to me to, to, to read someone who is processing some of the very issues that had ultimately brought me to Christ. And being in my teenage years uh, in those days, these are the kind of things that, on one hand, often made me feel rather depressed, and on the other, left me saying to myself, there must be more to life than what I am currently going through. The Bible I was using then had the words meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And in a sense, that also captures something of uh, the, the word that um, was being used here to, to express something of this sense of frustration that Solomon here is, is painting for us. The, the phrase has primarily to do with this, this sense of emptiness, this sense of fleeting, that life seems to so quickly pass you by and, and, and leaves you feeling, is this all? It's, it's like when you have a grand event that's coming up for you. Perhaps it's a graduation or, or maybe there's some event that you have won and and everybody has put up the hype in order to bring everything to a, a great crescendo. And you've reached there, the cameras are flashing, everybody's excited, they're in their best, and so on. And then the event comes to an end. And you get back home. And you say to yourself, is that all? For all the excitement and noise, we are back to, to square one. Is that really all that there is to life? Or, to use another picture, I've never forgotten one of uh, my fellow elders. Now, at that stage, he was still, to a large extent, a, a young believer. And uh, he had a child who battled with sickle cell um, anemia. And that particular child was brilliant as far as his knowledge was concerned. In fact, he had even become a believer himself. And now he was in a crisis. And on that particular occasion, the father called me and said, come. His, his name was John. And he said, John has just left us. So I rushed to the hospital, got there, and the, the lifeless body of this young man 
was still on the bed. And I've never forgotten the father saying to me, more or less words like this, is this all? That there is to life? Is, is this all? Well, it's something of that that Solomon is capturing in these words when he says vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Uh, the phrase vanity of vanities can be likened to holy of holies. It's, it's basically saying, with respect to holy of holies, that you have the holy place, and it really is holy, but you have another place that is even more holy. It's, it's holier than the first. Or we have another book in the Bible that we refer to as Song of Songs. Again, it's basically the same thing, that you, you, you have your, your songs that are uh, glorious, but this is the, the height of all songs. We also speak in terms of King of Kings and, and Lord of Lords. Again, it's capturing the same thing. And, and Solomon, having thought deeply about life, was basically saying, of all meaninglessness, I'm being brought to the point of thinking that life is the height or is it the depth of meaninglessness. Now, wh why did Solomon think like that? Well, it's primarily because God had given him a level of intelligence and wisdom that is completely uncommon. I think all of us will remember the occasion when God said to Solomon as, as a young king just beginning to rule over Israel, he said to him, ask me for anything and I will give it to you. And Solomon asked, we all know, for wisdom. For wisdom. And God gave it to him. And basically in giving him wisdom, he gave him the capacity to follow logic to its end, to its nth degree. To be able to say, okay, so this is what I am going through. This is what I want. Let me see, where is it finally leading me? And the book of Ecclesiastes basically is an invitation for us to join him in that process. He's saying he's already reached the conclusion, but he wants us to just come alongside him to, to see the, the kind of frustrations that he went through because of this God-given capacity that he had. And really, initially, it was this sense of emptiness. This sense of, so what? So what? that he was going through. 
vanity of vanities. It was a painful experience because all of us as human beings have, have a genuine craving. And first of all, ultimately that craving is for joy. Genuine joy. I may not know many of you in here, but I'm willing to bet my entire salary that I know one thing about you, and it's this, you want to be happy. Huh? You want to be happy. And that's because that's the way God has made us. We, we, we all want to have a sense of pleasure, a sense of enjoyment concerning life. And so when Solomon here is saying everything is meaningless, it's, it's, it's empty, there is a pain that is there in his heart that is basically saying, I'm losing the sense of joy in being around. But closely related to that is the phrase he uses in verse 3 when he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, our sense of joy is tied up with this aspect of gain. This aspect of of progress. It's, it's closely neat with that. And that's why you find that as human beings, we, 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 we want to, to go through school going from one stage of knowledge to the other. We, we, we want to, to, to get a job, and even in getting that job, we want to be able to see progress in that job. We, we want to get into business, and again, the same thing. We want to be able to see gain upon gain as years are passing by. We want to get married. We want to have children. We want to have grandchildren, and so on. It, it's, it's part of human life and living. Solomon himself, part of what he was seeking to do is something that he, he speaks about in um, chapter 2. Listen to him. Chapter 2. He says there, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Notice, he's following the thread to his logical conclusion. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was God, good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now listen to this. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. 
I bought male and female slaves, and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. In fact, it says there in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Really, we can go on with that story. The bottom line is this, that he undertook projects. And as he was doing it, he was pursuing pleasure, pursuing progress, pursuing gain. He speaks about work and pleasure. He speaks about community and friendship in chapter 4. And he speaks about wealth, even more wealth, in chapter 5. All that to find happiness. He's not the only one. We just read a few minutes ago uh, Psalm 90. You remember, maybe let's just quickly turn there. You, you will recall the way it ended. It ended with the words establish the work of our hands. Verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And we all could identify with that. Because that's life. We want to be able to come to the end of our lives and look back and be able to say, I lived for something. Haters. Haters. And it's in that that we find joy. Listen to the earlier verses. Verse 14. Verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen. So there is this connection between progress and gain and this joy and a sense of pleasure. Allow me to say that that's got nothing to do with us being fallen creatures. It is to do with us being made in the image of God, our creator. Remember when God was making the world? Remember how every so often you take two steps backwards and say, this looks good. Yeah. Again, Continues the following day, takes two steps backwards, and says, wow, this is God. There's a, there's a sense of pleasure in what he is doing. And when he finishes everything in six days, remember those words? This is very good. So it shouldn't surprise us 
that we feel that way too. That with respect to this work, the fruit of our sweat, that we, we have a sense of fulfillment in that. We, we want to be happy. And so we get out there and do something. Well, what is it that in the midst of this doing something that makes Solomon say, I've made nothing? What is it? Well, really, it's when he brings everything to the touchstone of death. Death. In fact, even before we get there, to, to, to the reality that actually life is not under my control. That is not. That I could on one day be making serious progress and then some minister of finance somewhere or some economists make up some policy that negates everything that I have done. Or some king elsewhere decides to go to war and then destroys everything that I've worked for. Look at the way he puts it in chapter 3. Chapter 3. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to cheer and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. A man is a fool who thinks he's in control of his times and seasons. And it's that that caused this man to engage in some deep thinking. But more than that, it was ultimately this reality of death. Chapter 7. Chapter 7. He says there, I just read the first six verses. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, 
and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, and the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Listen to verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. I'm sure you've gone through this experience before. Our brother Vodibokam was saying something like this when he was preaching just a day or two ago about thinking as a teenager that is invincible until the day he was at a funeral and it was a funeral of his friend who was like a hero to him as a teenager. And it was like a blow between the eyes to realize that my end is sure, it's coming. It's a sobering reality. It's, it's what caused Solomon to, to try and process life. So what if I built all these things and then finally I'm in a coffin? In fact, on one or two occasions, he, he, he speaks about the, the, the sense of exasperation when he realizes that the things I'm toiling for, I, I, I will leave it in the hands of other people. And who knows? They may be fools. They will blow away everything that I've told for for 50 years in 50 days. And was eating away at him. What's the point? There is an eternity that God has put in our souls that's not satisfied with simply, I built something and it's come crashing down. It's all right. After all, I built it. He, he, he likens that sobering reality to the visit to funeral houses where he's looking at people who are facing reality. That there is a terminus to this life called death. And he was saying, I want the kind of answer to life that when I'm on my deathbed, I will still be able to say it was worth it. That's really what he's wrestling with. And that's the reason why he's saying, you know, it's fools who seem to, 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 to really just think it's life with a capital L when they are drunk on wine and they're just laughing away. <laughs> Anyone who's a parent 
and he hears that kind of laughter in a bedroom where kids are. knows I better rush there. <laughs> because before long I'm going to hear <laughs> Yeah. So let me hurry in there and stop that. Because that's not real life. Solomon had enough wisdom to recognize that. And hence, the search continued. And I often find that, especially young people, they don't want to face this reality. That life is short. Life is uncertain. I will soon be gone. And therefore, I need an answer to life that will stand me good on that day when I'm breathing my last. You may have heard the story of a, um, a young man who in his family uh, had really been hardening his heart towards the things of God and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and the subject of repentance and so on. To him, he just wanted to, to enjoy life. And a time came when uh, he, he finished law school, graduated, and his dad uh, took him out for dinner. And as they were eating, the father began to ask him about you know, his future plans. And he spoke in terms of hiring himself out in a law firm, gaining the experience. And the father said, what do you hope to do after that? And the young man went on to say that he planned in due season to set up his own law firm. The father again asked him after that. The young man said, well, you know, dad, like you, I'm going to marry the girl of my dreams. And I'm going to raise up wonderful kids. And the father said, uh-huh, after that, the young man thought and said, well, you know, I'll make a fortune now. I will put up real estate and, and uh, I enjoy something of real investment. And the father said after that, the young man thought a moment and says, well, you know, after I've made my money, I'm told uh, I, I will I'll retire he says, and, and, and travel the world, just enjoy myself. And the father said, uh-huh. After that, <laughs> the son thought real hard for a moment and said, well, I, I guess I'll grow old. And the father said, uh-huh, after that? And here was his answer. He said, uh, I, I guess I'll die. You guess? <laughs> With a degree in law, you are guessing that you die? Is, is this failure to, to face facts? And by refusing to face that fact, you are refusing to, to put into place measures now 
that will ensure that when that day comes, which will come 100%, that you can look it in the face and say, I'm ready now. I'm ready. That's what Solomon is wrestling with here. He was basically saying, I, 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 I needed to come out of this fool's paradise. I need to come out of it so that I can go forward knowing that whether good or bad visits me, whether finally death visits me, I will be a victor to the very end. Let me ask you, as you are listening to this message, have you faced that fact? Even as you sit there, have you got the answer that satisfies you? Have you? Especially because, as human beings, we have a conscience. And the conscience is like a, a compass that always points north. You can shake it and shake it, and for a moment it's sort of pointing in every direction, just have to let it sit down there a moment, and it's again pointing north. You can bring a few magnets and make it face the wrong way, but before long, those magnets move away. It's pointing north. God has put into each one of us this realization that I've got an account to give to my maker. And often that becomes the excuse for not wanting to think about death. It's because you know it cannot be the end. Well, thankfully, Solomon had the wisdom. Instead of running away from God, he had the wisdom of bringing God into the picture. And it's when he did that that life took on meaning. That that sense of meaninglessness, that sense of vanity or emptiness began to go away and he started feeling or sensing solidity under his feet. Let's quickly go towards the end of this story. Chapter 11 and chapter 12. Chapter 11 and chapter 12. Remember, I talked about this judgment issue. And he talks about it there in chapter 11, verse 9, and right at the end of this letter, or this book. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Or, at the very end of chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. In the end, rather the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
Solomon has been on this journey. And as he tells us, God had screwed his head on properly on his shoulders. He did not allow the fleeting thoughts and activities of life to leave him giddy. He thought through everything. And finally, drawing to an end, he's saying, God is not saying, take away pleasure and joy. No, no. As he puts it there, rejoice, O young man, in the days of your youth. But rather, what God has said is this. You need me. You need me. Not just when you're getting old and about to die. You need me now. While you are still young, you desperately need me. And in a sense, that's what he means at the beginning of chapter 12 when he says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before old age comes in, remember him now. What does that mean? Basically, bring God's self-revelation into your life. Deal with your life. Bearing in mind the creator himself as the one who matters above all. Many years ago, I functioned as, I worked as an engineer in the mines. And on one occasion, we, we had to set up, establish a, a crusher underground from which copper ore was to be conveyed on conveyor belts all the way to the surface and into the smelter and everything else. And I've never forgotten how every week we used to have meetings to ask the question, how are we doing in this project? Are we heading in the right direction? Is this real progress? And trust me, the one thing that mattered the most was the blueprint of those who planned the project. Whenever we met, it was that document that was right in front of us. And whenever the contractor had veered off from that, he was in hot soup. <laughs> that became the issue. He had to try and justify how that veering off in due season would soon bring us right back onto course. It was the most important like document. Now, friends, God has provided that document. It's here. It's here. And to imagine a young person, it's the height of arrogance. First of all, dad, you're an old man. You know nothing. So the parents have been thrown out of his life. 
And who are supposed to be the role models now? It is music stars, movie stars, sports stars. Come on! That's to end up in a complete disaster. And we all know that, at least those of us who've lived long enough. Because often, while the guys are still smiling on the magazine covers with everything that speaks about wealth around them, the next day, in the news, they committed suicide. It comes as a shock to us. We thought they had it made. They were the opinion makers. The media was always running to them to, to tell us about everything. The truth of the matter is, there's only one source that matters. God. God, the maker of all things. But let me also hurry on to add this. That it's not simply that he has put this in the book. It is also that he wants to walk with us in all the events of life. God becomes the bulwark. He becomes the foundation. He becomes the buttress. Because life is not just the good stuff. You can go and visit a doctor just for a regular checkup and he calls you back within a few hours and gives you very bad news that changes the trajectory of your entire life. That's life. But all the, the comfort and peace of knowing that through all this, he is with me. All that I would appeal to you. Uh, we, we, especially young people, we tend to rely so much on friends and, and parents and, and on this and, and strengthen my body and all the rest of it. Oh, that you might realize that all that will one day fail you. What you need is God. God and God. And especially with respect to his salvation. His salvation. Because God alone is able to wipe away your sins, which are many, and God alone is able to tame that sinful heart of yours that's dragging you downhill into the abyss of hell. God alone is able to do that. So in the midst of that arrogant anger that you're feeling within your soul that could result in self-destruction. Go to him in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to him 
and plead with him that the blood that is shed on the cross might wash away your sin, that his spirit, his mighty spirit, would remove from you that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that rejoices in following after him. You need God in that way as well. But ultimately, you need God because when you've breathed your last, you must now appear before him for the final reckoning. And after that will be either eternal damnation or eternal joy. And that's the reason why he puts it this way at the end. Remember those words. That all has been said or heard. And here it is, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. What a joy it is, friend, to come to the end of life and know that the one that I lived for is no man's debtor. He will owe me nothing. That in eternity, he will multiply back to me. Sorry. Gadgets and gadgets. He will pour back into my life 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Every sacrifice that I ever made in this world will be absolutely nothing when he rewards his own. Indeed, the deliberate life lived for him and for his glory. On that day, everybody will see that that was the wisest way to live. It changes the phrase meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, to meaningful. Meaningful. At last, everything is meaningful. Are you there yet? Are you? As you sit in here today, have you reached that point in life where you've been able to extrapolate and say, on this trajectory, I am on a wise path. Or are you like the proverbial ostrich that seeing that truck coming, you have plunged your head into the sand? Allow me to say to you, wake up, wake up. For your own sake, for dear life's sake, wake up. 
There is meaning to life, but it is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in him. The wisest person who ever lived at that point, Solomon. Basically, that's what he's saying. And it's been the testimony of millions of others across the ages. Wake up and come to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we realize that the words that we have meditated on begin on a desperate note of frustration. Meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Vanity of vanities. But thank you, Lord, that it does not end on a note of exasperation. But it ends where life is lived with a capital L. Oh, God of heaven, help each one of us to see with New Testament eyes in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Help us all, O oh God, by the help of your Spirit to have the scales of our eyes to be removed that in Jesus we might see our all in all. For Jesus' sake, amen.